Chapter Twenty One of A Knight of the White Cross by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One The Fort of St. Nicholas. Well, you have proved indeed, Caretto said when Gervase finished his story, that you are worthy of the bestowal of a gage by a fair damsel. I do not think that many knights, however true they might be to the donor, would have suffered months of slavery in order to regain a token, lost by no fault or carelessness of their own, and no lady could have blamed or held them in any way dishonored by the loss. I had a message by Viscount de Montule from Lady Claudia the other day, saying that she trusted I had kept her gage. I can assure you that the six months of slavery were cheaply purchased by the pleasure I felt that I still possessed it, and I was glad, too, to learn that I had not been forgotten by her. Of that you may well assure yourself, Tresham. My commandery is not far from Genoa, and I was frequently with her, but never without her drawing me aside and asking me if I had heard any news of you and talking over with me the chances there might be of your escape i can tell you that there are not a few young nobles of genoa who would give much to be allowed as you are to carry her gage or wear her colours you should see her now you would scarce know her again so altered and improved is she there is no fairer face in all italy i hope some day to meet her again gervase replied although I own to knowing it were better that I should not do so. Until she gave me her gage, I had scarcely noticed her. I have, as you know, no experience of women, and had so much on my mind at the time that with the fuss they were making about us, and the question of getting the prizes here, that in truth I paid but slight attention to the fair faces of the dames of Genoa. But the gracious and earnest way in which, though scarce more than a child, she gave me her gage, and vowed that no other knight should possess one so long as I lived, struck me so greatly that I own I gave the matter much more thought than was right or becoming in one of our order. The incident was much more gratifying to me than all the honor paid me by the Republic, and during the long months of my captivity it has recurred to me so frequently that I have in vain endeavored to chase it from my thoughts, as sinful thus to allow myself constantly to think of any woman. Do not mistake me, Sir Fabricius, I am speaking to you as to a confessor, and just as I have kept her amulet hidden from all, so is the thought of her a secret I would not part with for my life. I do not for a moment deceive myself with the thought that, beyond the fact that her gift has made me feel an interest in me and my fate, she has any sentiment in the matter. Probably, indeed, she looks back upon the gift as a foolish act of girlish enthusiasm that led her into making a promise that she now cannot but find unpleasantly binding. For it is but natural that among the young nobles of her own rank and country there must be some whom she would see with pleasure wearing her colors. Caretto looked at him with some amusement. Were you not bound by your vows as a knight of the order, how would you feel in the matter? I should feel worse, Gervais said without hesitation. I have oftentimes thought that over, and I see that it is good for me I am so bound. It does not decrease my chances, for, as I know, there are no chances, but it renders it more easy for me to know that it is so. 
but why should you say that you have no chances tresham because it is easy to see that it is so i am save for my commandery and prospects in the order a penniless young knight without home or estate without even a place in my country and that country not hers i know that it is not only sinful but mad for me to think so frequently of her but at least i am not mad enough to think that i can either win the heart or aspire to the hand of one who is you say so beautiful and who is moreover as i know the heiress to wide estates there was a squire of low degree loved the king's daughter of hungary caretto sang with a laugh you are not of low degree but of noble family gervase you are not a squire but a knight and already a very distinguished one nor is the young lady though she be a rich heiress a king's daughter at any rate the squire was not vowed to celibacy no no sir fabricius it is a dream and a pleasant one but i know perfectly well that it is but a dream and one that will do me no harm so long as i ever bear in mind that it is so many a knight of the order before me has borne a lady's gage and carried it valiantly in many a fight and has been no less true to his vows for doing so upon the contrary he has been all the better a knight gervais it is always good for a knight whether he belongs to the order or not to prize one woman above all others and to try to make himself worthy of his ideal as to the vow of celibacy you know that ere now knights have been absolved from their vows and methinks that after the service you have rendered to italy by ridding the sea of those corsairs his holiness would make no difficulty in granting any request that you might make him in that or any other direction i don't know whether you are aware that after you sailed from here letters came from rome as well as from pisa florence and naples expressive of the gratitude felt for the services that you had rendered and of their admiration for the splendid exploit that you had performed no the grand master has had his hands so full of other matters that doubtless an affair so old escaped his memory indeed he may have forgotten that i sailed before the letters arrived do not forget to jog his memory on the subject for i can tell you that the letters did not come alone but were each accompanied by presents worthy of the service you rendered but as to the vows as to the vows i feel as i said just now that i would not free myself of them if i could for being bound by them i can the more easily and pleasantly enjoy my dream besides what should i do if i left the order without home country or means and with naught to do but to sell my sword to some warlike monarch besides caretto i love the order and deem it the highest privilege to fight against the muslims and to uphold the banner of the cross as to that you could like de montiel and many other knights here always come out to aid the order in time of need as to the vows i am not foolish enough to suppose that you would ask to be relieved from them until you had assured yourself that claudia was also desirous that you should be free it is absurd gervais said almost impatiently do not let us talk any more about it Caretto or it will end by turning my head and making me presumptuous enough to imagine that the lady claudia who only saw me for three or four days and that while she was still but a girl has been thinking of me seriously since i do not know claudia's thoughts caretto remarked dryly 
but i do know that last year she refused to listen to at least a score of excellent offers for her hand including one from a son of the dog himself and that without any reasonable cause assigned by her to the great wonderment of all seeing that she does not appear to have any leaning whatever towards a life in a nunnery at any rate if at some future time you should pluck up heart of grace to tell her you love her and she refuses you you will at least have the consolation of knowing that you are not the only one by a long way whose suit has been rejected and now as to our affairs here methinks that to-morrow that battery will open fire upon us it seems completed yes i think they are nearly ready gervais said turning his mind resolutely from the subject they had been discussing from the palace wall i saw before i came down here large numbers of men rolling huge stones down towards the church our guns were firing steadily but could they load them ten times as fast as they do they would hardly be able to stop the work so numerous are those engaged upon it yes we shall soon learn something of the quality of their artillery the tower is strong enough to resist ordinary guns but it will soon crumble under the blows of such enormous missiles never have i seen or heard in europe of cannon of such size but indeed in this matter the turks are far ahead of us and have ever since cannon were first cast made them of much larger size than we in europe have done however there is one comfort they may destroy this fort but they have still to cross the water and this under the fire of the guns on the palace walls when they once land their great battery must cease firing and we shall be able to meet them on equal terms in the breach fight as hard as they may i think we can hold our own especially as reinforcements can come down to us more quickly than they can be brought across the water the next morning at daybreak the deep boom of a gun announced to the city that the great battering cannon had begun their work in the fort the sleeping knights sprang to their feet at the concussion that seemed to shake it to its centre they would have rushed to the walls but Coretto at once issued orders that no one should show himself on the battlements unless under special orders there is nothing whatever to be done until the turks have breached the wall and are ready to advance to attack us every sword will be needed when that hour comes and each man owes it to the order to run no useless risk until the hour when he is required to do his share of the fighting the time required to reload the great cannon was considerable but at regular intervals they hurled their heavy missiles against the wall the distance being so short that every ball struck it after some twenty shots had been fired caretto accompanied by gervais went out by a small gate on the eastern side of the tower and made their way round by the foot of the wall to see what effect the shots had produced on the solid masonry caretto shook his head it is as i feared he said no stones ever quarried by man could long resist such tremendous blows in some places you see the stones are starred and cracked in others the shock seems to have pulverized the spot where it struck but where still the whole face of the wall is shaken there are cracks between the stones and some of these are partly bulged out and partly driven in it may take some time before a breach is effected but sooner or later the wall will surely be demolished i will go up and make my report to the grand master 
do so gervais i almost wonder that he has not himself come down to see how the wall is resisting gervais on reaching the palace heard that diabason was at present engaged in examining no less a person than maitre george's the right hand of paleologus who had soon after daybreak presented himself before the wall on the other side of the town declaring that he had left the turkish service and craving to be admitted news had been sent at once to diabason who dispatched two of the senior knights with orders to admit him and receive him with all honour this had been done and the grand master with some of his council were now closeted with the newcomer several of the knights were gathered in the courtyard discussing the event there was no question that if the renegade came in good faith his defection would be a serious blow to the assailants and that his well-known skill and experience would greatly benefit the defenders for my part sir john boswell who formed one of the detachment which the english lang as well as all the others contributed to form the garrison of the palace said i would have hung the fellow up by the neck over the gateway and he should never have set foot within the walls think you that a man who has denied his faith and taken service with his enemies is to be trusted whatever oaths he may take you must remember boswell another said that hitherto george's has not fought against the christians but has served mahomet in his wars with other infidels i am not saying a word in defence of his having become a renegade yet even a renegade may have some sort of heart and now that he has been called upon to fight against christians he may well have repented of his faults and determined to sacrifice his position and prospects rather than aid in the attack on the city we shall see as for me i regard a renegade as the most contemptible of wretches and have no belief that they have either a heart or conscience when maitre george's came out from the palace laughing and talking with the two knights who had entered with him it was evident that he was well pleased with his reception by the grand master who had assigned to him a suite of apartments in the guest-house in reality however diabason had no doubt that his object was a treacherous one and that like demetrius who had come under the pretence of bringing about a truce his object was to find out the weak points and to supply the turks with information george's had in his conversation with him laid great stress on the strength of the turkish army the excellent quality of the troops and the enormous battering train that had been prepared but every word he spoke but added to the grand master's suspicions for if the man considered that the capture of the city was morally certain it would be simply throwing away his life to enter it as a deserter the grand master was however too politic to betray any doubt of george's sincerity were he treated as a traitor paleologus might find another agent to do the work it was therefore better to feign a belief in his story to obtain all the information possible from him and at the same time to prevent his gaining any knowledge of affairs that would be of the slightest use to the turks instructions were therefore given to the two knights that while george's was to be treated with all courtesy he was to be strictly watched though in such a manner that he should be in ignorance of it and that whenever he turned his steps in the direction of those parts of the defences where fresh works had been recently added and preparations made of which it was desirable the turks should be kept in ignorance he was to be met as if by accident by one of the knights told off for the purpose 
and his steps diverted in another direction. George's soon made himself popular among many of the knights. He had no suspicions of his real character. He was a man of exceptional figure, tall, strong, splendidly proportioned, with a handsome face and gallant bearing. He was extremely well informed on all subjects, had traveled widely, had seen many adventures, was full of anecdote, and among the younger knights, therefore, he was soon regarded as a charming companion. His very popularity among them aided Diabason's plans, as George's was generally the center of a group of listeners, and so had but few opportunities of getting away quietly to obtain the information he sought. Gervais delivered his report to the Grand Master. "'I am free now,' Diabason said, "'and will accompany you to St. Nicholas. I have been detained by the coming of this man George's.' He is a clever knave, and I doubt not, has come as a spy. However, I have taken measures that he shall learn nothing that can harm us. No lives have been lost at the tower, I hope. No, sir, Coretto has forbidden any to show themselves on the walls. He has done well. This is no time for rash exposure, and where there is not to be gained, it is a grave fault to run risks. On arriving at the end of the mole, Diabason, accompanied by Coretto, made an investigation of the effect of the Turk's fire. "'Tis worse than I expected,' he said. "'When we laid out our fortifications, with the thought that such guns as these would be used against them, never entered our minds.' Against ordinary artillery the walls would stand a long battering, but it is clear that we shall have to depend more upon our swords than upon our walls for our defense. Fortunately, although the Turks have indeed chosen the spot where our walls are most open to the assaults of their battery, they have to cross the water to attack the breach when it is made and will have to fight under heavy disadvantage. Tresham was last night saying to me that it seemed to him it would not be a difficult matter for one who spoke Turkish well to issue at night on the other side of the town and to make his way round to the battery, disguised, of course, as a Turkish soldier, and then, mixing with the artillerymen, to drive a spike into one of the touch-holes. He said that he would gladly volunteer for the task. Diabason shook his head decidedly. It would be too dangerous, and even were a spike driven in, the Turks would have no great difficulty in extracting it, for the tubes are so big that a man might crawl in and drive the spike up from the inside. Moreover, could one or more of the guns be disabled permanently, others would be brought down and set in their place so that nothing would be gained but a very short delay, which would be of no advantage to us, and certainly would in no way justify the risking of the life of so distinguished a young knight. The bombardment of St. Nicholas continued for some days. A breach was fast forming in the wall, and a slope composed of the fallen rubbish extended from the front of the breach to the water's edge. The Grand Master was frequently on the spot, and as this was at present the sole object of attack, the garrison was strengthened by as many knights as could be sheltered within its walls, 
At night the shattered masonry that had fallen inside was carried out, and with it a new work thrown up across the mole to strengthen the defense on that side should the enemy land between the town and the fort. Small batteries were planted wherever they could sweep the approaches to the breach, and planks studded with nails were sunk into the shallow water of the harbor to impede the progress of those who might attempt to swim or wade across. For the time, therefore, the functions of Gervais were in abeyance, and he labored with the rest of the garrison at the defenses. At daybreak on the ninth of June, a great number of vessels and boats, crowded with soldiers, bore down on St. Nicholas. As they approached, every gun on the fortifications that could be brought to bear upon them opened fire. But in a dense mass they advanced. Some made their way to the rocks and landed the soldiers there. Others got alongside the mole, but the majority grounded in the shallow water of the harbor, and the troops, leaping out, waded to the foot of the breach. On its crest, Diabason himself had taken up his station. Beside him stood Coretto, and around them the most distinguished knights of the order. With wild shouts the Turks rushed up the breach, and swarmed thickly up the ruined masonry until, at its summit, they encountered the steel-clad line of the defenders. For hours the terrible struggle continued. As fast as the head of the Turkish column broke and melted away, against the obstacle they tried in vain to penetrate. Fresh reinforcements took the place of those who had fallen, and in point of valor and devotion the Muslim showed himself a worthy antagonist of the Christian. It was not only at the breach that the conflict raged, at other points the Turks, well provided with ladders, fixed them against the walls, and desperately strove to obtain a footing there. From the breach clouds of dust rose from under the feet of the combatants, mingling with the smoke of the cannon on the ramparts, the fort, and Turkish ships, and at times entirely hid from the sight of the anxious spectators on the walls of the town and fortress, and of the still more numerous throng of Turks on St. Stephen's Hill, the terrible struggle that continued without a moment's intermission. The combatants now fought in comparative silence, the knights exhausted and worn out by their long efforts beneath the blazing sun, still showed an unbroken front, but it was only occasionally that the battle-cry of the order rose in the air, as a fresh body of assailants climbed up the corpse-strewn breach. The yell of the Muslims rose less frequently. They sacrificed their lives as freely and devotedly as those who led the first onset had done. But as the hours wore on, the assurance of victory died out and a doubt as to whether it was possible to break through the line of their terrible foes gained ground. Diabason himself, although in spite of the remonstrances of the night, always in the thickest of the fray, was yet ever watchful, and quickly perceived where the defenders were hotly pressed, and where support was most needed. Gervais fought by his side, so that, when necessary, he could carry his orders to a little body of knights, drawn up in reserve, and dispatched them to any point where aid was needed. The cannons still continued their fire on both sides. A fragment of one of the stone balls from a basilisk struck off Diabason's helmet. He selected another from among the fallen knights, and resumed his place in the line. Still the contest showed no signs of terminating. The Turkish galleys ever brought up reinforcements, while the defenders grew fewer and more exhausted, 
During a momentary pause, while a fresh body of Turks were landing, Gervais said to the Grand Master, If you will give me leave, sir, I will go out at the water gate, swim up the inner harbor, and in a very short time will turn a few of the craft lying there into fire ships, and tow them out with a couple of galleys. At any rate, we can fire all these craft that have grounded, and create a panic among the others. Well thought of, Gervais. I will write an order on one of my tablets. Do you take my place for a minute? Withdrawing behind the line, the Grand Master sat down on a fragment of stone, and drawing a tablet from a pouch in his girdle, he wrote on it, In all things carry out the instructions of Sir Gervais Tresham. He is acting by my orders and authority, and has full power in all respects. He handed the slip of parchment to Gervais, who hurried to the water-gate in the inner harbour, threw off his helmet and armour, issued out at the gate, and plunged into the sea. He swam out some distance in order to avoid the missiles of the Turks, who were trying to scale the wall from the mole, and then directed his course to St. Michael's, which guarded the inner entrance to the fort. He had fastened the parchment in his hair, and as some of the garrison of the tower, noticing his approach, came down to assist him, he handed it to them and was at once taken to the commander of St. Michael, answering as he went the anxious questions as to how matters stood at the breach. Aid is sorely needed. The Turks have gained no foot of ground as yet, but many of the knights are killed, and most of the others are utterly exhausted with heat and labor. Unless aid reaches them speedily, the tower with all its defenders will be lost. The instant the commander knew what was required, he bade six of the knights embark with Gervais in a boat moored behind the tower, and row up the harbor to the spot where the shipping was all massed together. Protected by the high ground of the fortress from the Turkish fire, Gervais waved his hand as he neared the end of the harbor to the officer on the walls, and while the six knights who were with him ran off to tell the master of the galleys to prepare two of them to leave the port instantly, Gervais explained to the officer in charge of the wall at that point the plan that he was charged to carry out, and asked for twenty knights to assist him. "'It will leave us very weak along here,' the officer said. "'Then let me have ten, and send for another ten from other parts of the wall. Here is the Grand Master's order, giving me full power and authority, and it is all important that no single moment shall be wasted.' "'You shall have twenty of mine,' the officer said and I will draw ten from the lang next to us to fill their places. In a few minutes the quay was a scene of bustle and activity. Gervais picked out ten of the smallest vessels. The knights went among the other ships, seized all goods and stores that were to be useful as combustibles, and compelled the crews to carry them on board the craft chosen as fire-ships. Then barrels were broken open, old sails and faggots saturated with oil and pitch, and in little more than a quarter of an hour after his arrival, Gervais had the satisfaction of seeing that the tin boats were all filled with combustibles, and ready to be set on fire. He now called for volunteers from the sailors, and a number of them at once came forward, including many of the captains. He placed one of these in command of each fire-ship, and gave him four of the sailors. "'The galleys will tow you out,' he said, "'and take you close to the enemy's ships. We shall range you five abreast, and when I give the word, the one at the end of the line will steer for the nearest Turk, and with oars and poles get alongside. The captain will then light the train of powder in the hold, throw the torch among the straw, 
and see that, if possible, the men fasten her to the Turk. But if this cannot be done, it is not essential, for in the confusion the enemy will not be able to get out of the way of the fire-ship as it drives down against her. At the last moment you will take to your boats and row back here. We will protect you from the assault of any of the Turkish ships. Having made sure that all the captains understood the orders, Gervais took command of one of the galleys, the senior knight going on board the other. The ten fire-ships were now pulled out until five were ranged abreast behind each craft. Gervais requested the commander of the other galley to lie off the point of St. Nicholas until he had got rid of his five fire-ships, then to advance and launch his craft against the Turks. The smoke of the guns lay so heavy on the water, and the combatants were so intent upon the struggle at the breach, that Gervais steered his galley into the midst of the Turkish vessels laden with troops ready to disembark, without attracting any notice. Then, standing upon the taffrail, he signaled to the two outside boats to throw off their ropes and make for the Turkish ship nearest to them. This they did, and it was not until a sheet of flame rose alongside that the enemy awoke to the sense of danger. The other three fireships were almost immediately cast off. Two of them were equally successful, but the Turks managed to thrust off the third. She drifted, however, through the shipping, and presently brought up alongside one of the vessels fast aground. With but ten knights, Gervais could not attack one of the larger vessels crowded with troops, but there were many fishing boats that had been pressed into the service, and against one of these Gervais ordered the men to steer the galley. A shout to the rowers made them redouble their efforts. A yell of dismay arose from the Turkish troops as they saw the galley bearing down upon them and frantic efforts were made to row out of her way. These were in vain, for her sharp prow struck them amidships, cutting the boat almost in two, and she sank like a stone, the galley without a pause, making for another boat. Looking back, Gervais saw that his consort was already in the midst of the Turks, among whom the wildest confusion prevailed, each ship trying to extricate herself from the mass upon which the batteries of the fortress now concentrated their efforts two fresh columns of flame had already shot up and satisfied that all was going well gervais continued his attack upon the smaller craft six of whom were overtaken and sunk three or four of the larger vessels endeavoured to lay themselves alongside the galley but her speed was so superior to theirs that she easily evaded the attempts and sweeping round rejoined the other galley which had just issued from among the turks who were already in full retreat. The defenders of St. Nicholas, reanimated by the sight of the discomfiture of the Turkish fleet, with a loud shout rushed down from the spot which they had held for so many hours, drove their assailants before them, and flung themselves upon the crowd assembled at the foot of the breach. These had already suffered terribly from the fire of the batteries. Again and again they had striven to storm the mound of rubbish, and had each time been repulsed with the loss of their bravest leaders seeing themselves abandoned by the ships a panic seized them and as the knights rushed down upon them they relinquished all thoughts of resistance and dashed into the shallow water many were drowned in the attempt to swim across the deep channel in the middle some succeeded while others made their escape in the boats in which they had been brought ashore from the ships the struggle was over the two galleys made for the breach and the knights leapt out as soon as the boats grounded and wading ashore 
joined the group that had so long and gallantly sustained the unequal fight. Fatigue, exhaustion, and wounds were forgotten in the triumph of the moment, and they crowded round the Grand Master and Coretto, to whose joint exertions the success of the defense was so largely due. "'Do not thank me, comrades,' D'Aubison said. "'No man has to-day fought better than the rest. Every man has shown himself worthy of the fame of our order. The meed of praise for our success is first due to Sir Gervais Tresham. At the moment when I began to doubt whether we could much longer withstand the swarms of fresh foes who continued to pour against us, while we were overcome by heat and labor, Sir Gervais, who had throughout been fighting at my side, offered to swim into the port, to fit out a dozen of the merchant craft there as fire-ships, and to tow them round into the midst of the Turkish vessels behind the two galleys that were lying ready for service. I remembered how he had before destroyed the Corsair fleet at Sardinia with fire-ships, and the proposal seemed to me as an inspiration sent from heaven. At this moment of our great peril I wrote him an order, giving him full authority to act in my name, and in a time that seemed to me incredibly short I saw him round the point with the fire-ships in tow. You saw as well as I did how completely the plan was carried out. Ten or twelve of the Turkish ships are a mass of flames, and besides these I noted that the galley ran down and destroyed several smaller craft filled with soldiers. The panic in the ships spread to the troops on shore, and rendered the last part of our task an easy one. I say it from my heart that I consider it is to Sir Gervais Tresham that we owe our success, and that had it not been for his happy thought, the sun would have gone down on our dead bodies lying on the summit of the breach, and on the Turkish flag waving over the fort of St. Nicholas. Until now none of the defenders of the breach had known how what seemed to them an almost miraculous change in the fortune of the fight had come about, and they thronged round Gervais, shaking his hand, and many of them warmly embracing him, according to the custom of the time. It was but natural that the idea should occur to me, he said, having before successfully encountered them with fireships, and as all on shore, and especially these knights, aided me with all their power, it took but a brief time to get the boats in readiness for burning. Much credit, too, is due to the merchant captains and sailors who volunteered to take charge of the fireships and to maneuver them alongside the Turks. The Grand Master and the knights who had borne the brunt of the battle now retired along the mole to the town, bearing with them their most seriously wounded comrades, and assisting those whose wounds were less severe. The twenty knights who had manned the two galleys remained in the fort, Coretto continued in command, as, although he had suffered several wounds, he refused to relinquish his post. Gervais, who had, thanks partly to his skill with weapons, but still more to the temper of the splendid suit of armor presented to him by Genoa, escaped without a scratch, volunteered to remain with him until next morning, his principal motive for making the request being his desire to escape from further congratulations and praise 
for the success of his plan. After Coretto's wounds had been dressed by the knights, and he and Gervais had partaken of some food and wine, which they greatly needed, Coretto was persuaded to lie down for a time, the knights promising to bring him word at once if they perceived any movement whatever on the part of the enemy. Gervais remained with him, feeling, now the excitement was over, that he sorely needed rest after his exertions in the full heat of the summer sun. "'It has been a great day, Gervais,' Coretto said, "'and I only hope that when again I go into battle with the infidel I shall have you at hand to come forward at the critical moment, with some master stroke to secure victory.' Claudia will be pleased indeed when she hears how the knight who bears her gage has again distinguished himself. She will look on the gay and idle young fops of Genoa with greater disdain than ever. Now you need not say anything in protest, the more so as I feel grievously weak and disposed for sleep. End of chapter 21 Read by Peter Strom In Manezelis Columbia, on February 5th, 2019.